Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster, and I am here today going in deep with Sarah Brown. Uh, Sarah is a B2B tech marketing leader. She is the author of the outstanding book, Lead Upwards. She is a startup mentor. Uh, she's an ecosystem builder, and she's focused on scaling SaaS companies through customer-centric marketing, but I have appreciated her wisdom on many, many things that go way beyond that. Uh, so Sarah, great to have you here. Thank you so much, Matt. Really excited to be here. Uh, one of the things I loved about your book, um, and really about a lot of the uh, the writing that you've done and the speaking that you've done, is you're a, you're a great voice for talking about career progression. And um, you know, I think you have lots of interesting things to say about that, and would love to just dive in and start with that topic. Um, so one of the things that um, that I think is true of today of careers today that was probably not true ten or twenty years ago. Um, is, as I always say, uh, careers used to be like ladders. Your next job had to be the one above yours, um, which meant you had to wait for your boss to get promoted or quit or get fired or retire or something. Um, and that today, uh, careers are much more like jungle gyms. And your next job is anything you can grab. It's anything you're, you're close enough to. It doesn't have to be the thing right there, but anything you're close enough to that you can, uh, you can grab and add value in different ways. And I'd love... Um, to hear from you some of the more sort of creative career paths, either that you've been through um, or that you've seen um, others go through at you know sort of the mid and senior levels in startups and how, how those work. Great question. Um, a title or a subtitle for the book was almost the nonlinear path when we were talking with the Wiley team, because um, to your point, it's absolutely nonlinear for most startup leaders. And unlike at larger companies, um, or even later stage startups, once they've built career pathing, a lot of startups have, um, to your point, many different opportunities for startup folks that's not necessarily um, written out in a guidebook. And so as startup employees, and something that really got me interested in writing about this topic and learning about this topic for my own edification, uh, we really have to figure out a lot of this on our own. And so some of the career paths I've seen um, have been have been really looking at how to get to what's right for you, which may or may not be quote unquote the next rung. So, for instance, um, coming up, for instance, in startup marketing, many people get siloed into a particular area of expertise. They start out as a generalist, but then they're the content person or the demand gen person. And to really lead the function, you have to have an understanding of all of the parts of marketing. And so, in order to get that expertise, we see a lot of folks doing things like consulting or potentially um, asking for a project that's outside of their remit on a day-to-day -day basis while still handling their day-to-day -day job. I'll give an example. Um, I had an employee at my company where uh, he was a generalist. He was, you know, started, I think he was marketer number one um, very, very early on and was doing the ads and the landing pages and all of that and became really obsessed with our brand and working on brand topics. So when he took that on, right, he was able to get promoted into his first management role um, by really seeing a need and filling that, right? We see that in the startup world. Um, also someone on my team who came from the product world, right? Really awesome product person, became a product marketer, right? Natural fit. And we see a lot of different versions of this. So I'd say um, if you're looking for startup leadership, also if you're at a big company and you wanna come work at a scale up, I just spoke with a, a woman who's 
uh, head of RevOps at a was at a large company and wants to go into the startup world. And she said, Sarah, I think I'm going to like it, but I have no idea what's the startup world really like. And I said, you know, it really, really depends. But, you know, we talked about what could be helpful for her in her process of getting her first startup leadership role um, coming from a different direction. And she's going to also try consulting with a potential full-time opportunity at the end of it to see if it's a mutual fit. Yeah, you know, it, people's careers are, are just so fluid and so different now. And, um, uh, you know, it used to be if you're looking at a resume, you hire people all the time too. You look at a resume and, you know, someone was at this string of things for two years or three years or 18 months. You'd be like, oh, what's wrong with them? Why haven't they been somewhere for a long time? And I think now you look at that and yeah, maybe if there's too much of that, you want to ask a couple of questions. But a lot of the time you look at that and you sort of you value the variety of experience. I think that's true. And, um, you know, people who have stayed at a, at a company for a long time can do really different roles within that. Um, I remember uh, I was aqua hired. Um, so I was head of marketing for a really tiny product and we got acquired. And then my role became much more generalist. This was much earlier in my career. And when I was then marketing 13 lines of business versus one. I had to learn a whole new set of skills. There were different ideal customer profiles. There were target markets we were selling to. And so I also think if you're willing to hang on at a large company or at a company that's growing, and to your point, being willing to be maybe title agnostic or care less about the sort of next rung and take a, a lateral move, quote unquote, but that's going to teach you something new, um, it can open up a lot of different possibilities. So um, that certainly was true for me. And I've seen that with others as well. Yeah, I think there's also, uh, there's, there's so much value to the company. There's obviously value to the, to the employee to move around and get skilled in different disciplines, uh, different roles. There's so much value to the company in retaining top talent that might otherwise get itchy to go you know, somewhere else if the job above is not available. Um, if you can move top talent around from product management to marketing, from marketing to sales, uh, from engineering to product, whatever the, the move is. And um, we always found, um, you know, at, at the scale that we got at the end of Return Path, we were about 500 people. We were moving about 10% of the workforce every year laterally and, uh, you know, from one department to another. And we just got huge value out of that. We, we decided at some point that training someone in the company when they were a functional expert from the outside was just as hard as training someone in the function, hmm. uh, but who had the knowledge of the company, the products, the customers, um, et cetera. So I, I think, I think the value to the company is real too. Um, all right. So one of the other things you talk about in the book that I think, um, is, is, uh, is such a great insight is, uh, the struggle of the big company executive that gets hired into the startup. And, you know, every company goes through this at some point you're in a board meeting. It's almost always in a board meeting. And someone on the board says, you know, it's time to hire the adult supervision um, or hopefully something a little less pejorative, uh, right? It's time to bring in someone who really knows what they're doing and in, you know, pick your function. Um, and I, I don't have data on this. I would guess the majority of those hires don't work. Um, and uh, I remember one that, one that we had um, early in my career when I was uh, running um, I actually wasn't even an executive level yet at, at Movie Phone, the company I was at uh, for a bunch of years before I started Return Path. Um, and uh, the company hired a, uh, the, you know, the adult supervision to run marketing. And, and this is the mid 90s. So you have to remember as you hear the story. 
and the person came in and he had had a you know 20 year career in in cpg marketing he was an incredibly nice guy and very good at what he did and he came in on the first day and he asked where the typing pool was and you know obviously there's no such thing as that anymore but there there was not a lot of that even then um, and that's the environment he came out of. He came out of the environment where he was surrounded by support staff and surrounded by help and his assistants had assistants. Um, and even today, when people are a little more self-serve, dropping someone like that into a startup can be incredibly difficult for the person and for the startup. Um, so how have you, that was a long wind up to the question, but how have you seen, how have you seen that work? When it works, why does it work? And when it doesn't work, What's the, what's the early warning sign? Great question. Uh, yes, the march of the incoming execs. We, we've been there. I, I've been there. And I think, so uh, startup um, CEO Aaron Rand, um, who's quoted in the book, was at uh, a large company brocade for a long time. And when she made the, the switch to the startup world, I think one of the biggest challenges she noted was the political differences and, and how things get done. It's not a memo. It's not a PowerPoint presentation. It's go do it. And maybe talk about it in some form, but but really a bias towards action. And the I'd say the turnaround for decision-making had to be really different than what she was used to. And there were also a lot of different cultural things around um, sharing one's personal life, right? I think in the startup world, ostensibly we're expected to be more, um, maybe uh, closer to folks and not necessarily have all of those hierarchical pieces, especially earlier stage. And so she had to, I think she called it, um, get the corporate offer or knock the corporate offer. And, and so there were, I would say, advice for someone making that change and, and having recently spoken with someone who's um, been a leader at a large, larger company in RevOps and has recently decided to move to the startup world is really understanding if you are willing to be in those cultural environments where speed and communication are, are different and being willing to potentially go back into the weeds if you've been really removed from it. And whether you're joining uh, an early stage company or even a later stage company, I think you really have to have more of an understanding. If you're, Even if you're not executing, of course, you're, you're hiring a team, um, being willing to really understand at the granular level what's happening. Whereas at a larger company, a lot of that's already sort of the status quo is performing and you're coming in to potentially manage things differently, but you're not building something necessarily in the same way. Um, and then I think a pitfall I've also seen is this idea of command and control, right? We've seen leaders come in from larger companies. They're used to whether or not they're looking for some typing pool that does not exist, right? This idea of um, it's my way, comply. Like, I think today's modern workforce in general struggles with that, but particularly I think who's attracted to work at a startup, people who want to experiment. Now startups are about, hey, let's go together over there and let's figure out how to go as opposed to like you go there now. Mm -hmm. I also think it's interesting, depending on the function, I've seen big company folks really struggle to hire because they don't have a sense of also the persona they're, they're looking for with talent. So really spending, I would say, spend a lot of time with your HR team, with your talent team to really define um, who your ideal candidates are, because as you're building your team, um, you don't want to hire people who would have succeeded at your previous company. You have to hire a different profile um, who will support you. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting that the, uh, your story about um, who was an Aaron. Um, that she, she said, I have to knock the corporate off of me, right? So uh, as with most things in life, self-awareness is the key to lots of good uh, things, including change. Um, uh, so assuming you're, so you're, you're a startup person, someone gets hired into the seat next to you or above you and they're super corporate. And let's assume that they have that openness 
that they're like, all right, I, I gotta, I gotta do things differently. How, how do you help them? How do you help them yeah. as, as their peer? How do you help them working for them? How do you help them as their boss? Perfect question. I think helping people understand the importance of really getting on the shop floor, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you're used to this working a certain way at a different company might be going through your head, but that doesn't necessarily resonate. You have to sort of help someone understand um, this thing that you think should be running this way. We actually don't even have the software yet, right? Like I think really testing your own assumptions with what a person would understand that they, I think they expect, uh, usually with a leader who's coming in from that background, they expect a lot of things that don't exist yet. And so I'd say help them right-size their expectations by showing them data, right? Showing them, here's what we have and here's what we're building. Help me understand how to help you uh, with your vision because the execution is going to look different than at your previous company. And an example of that is um, uh, I was at a company where the sales leader came from a really large company. He said, okay, it's time for SKO. Um, where's the assistant who can help organize all of this? It's like, nope, first SKO, you've, you've got so this. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, and, and to the point of this leader, uh, you know, she did a really good job of building a really awesome first SKO at that company. But, um, you know, it was a mindset shift of like, there's no one who's going to set this up for you. And even yes, you're going to have to book the conference center and you're going to have to find someone on your team who can research, um, you know, what activities are happening, right? Th that level of detail, whereas you would hire more people who would, who would own all of those things. So really surprising what things you have to do on your own, unclog the proverbial toilets, so to speak. Or, um, or maybe even the real ones. <laughs> there you go. And I'd say also just advice, if you're working with someone who has a really different mindset is find, find that relationship early on, right? Especially if they're coming from a culture where maybe you have to watch your back a lot, or there's, mm. I'd say, um, to politics. And I, I've actually worked with folks who, uh, at different levels of seniority have come from larger companies where, um, there is a lot of, uh, it's a proactive defensiveness that just, it slows things down. And at first it was weird. I was like, well, why, why is this person doing this? And then I, I had empathy and realized, oh, it's because at their last company, people would take credit for right. this idea. And then their department didn't get this funding. I mean, it was very weird. So yeah, just this, yeah. politics are a really interesting topic. And, and, you know, it's not that all big companies have a ton of it and all startups don't. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there's a correlation between amount of politics and size of company. Um, I don't know what the R squared is, but it, it's decent. Um, the, uh, we had uh, someone that was a senior exec on my team many years ago uh, uh, who was totally ineffective, totally qualified to do the job, totally ineffective. And, um, uh, when when either he quit or I fired him, and I think I I think I ended up firing him. Um, he got very huffy and he said, "You know, I could never figure out whose ass I had to kiss to get something done around this place." And I remember after he left, thinking, "Yeah, he never figured it out. There was no ass to kiss. He actually just had to go do the work." Um, I don't know how you reprogram someone who's used to that kind of environment where the way you get something done is finding the right ass to kiss. I just, I could never get my head around that. I hear you. I'll frame it a little, I'll frame some, I'll frame this all a little more positively. <laughs> Please. Say, focus on the strength of this big company. This big company person was brought in because a board member or someone decided that their expertise would be valuable. So lean on what they do bring, right? They're, they may or may not know how to look at Salesforce properly. And they're so used to someone else handing them a dashboard that already has everything explained. Um, they're not going to know necessarily what to ask for. However, um, you know, you hire that 
chief operations officer from that large company and it's time for your first board meeting, be very grateful that they can clean up everything before that board meeting, right? Like actually be able to make the startup look way more advanced than it is. And so figure out what those strengths are, whether it's, um, you know, their background or something that they've done for years and, and leverage that. Um, and, and I'd say be patient with their uh, learning curve as patient as possible. Uh, that's, uh, that is probably the only thing you can do. So that's a good, good way to think about it. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the phrases that I think you and I both use, and I think you had it in your book, is, um, is around getting promoted by just going ahead and doing that next job that you want to get promoted into anyway. And I think you, you, you and I both use the language of just act as if you have it. Um, and I, you know, obviously you still have to get your current job done. You have to get it done really well, but you just literally just start doing the next job and eventually you find yourself in it. And, um, I have seen this work really well. Uh, I've also seen it, um, uh, prove to be problematic from time to time, not because someone's stepping on someone else's toes, but more that, um, uh, there are, there are CEOs and there are leaders who really get anchored on their first impression of someone. And, um, you know, when someone starts as an EA and then gets promoted into a marketing coordinator and then gets promoted into a manager and, you know, 10 years can go by and the CEO still thinks of that person as the 25 year old or 23 year old who showed up as, as the EA. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you fight against that when it's you? I mean, it, you know, obviously the one way to fight against it is you leave the company and you go somewhere else and you've got your title and experience and maybe you come back someday, but like, how do you, how do you sort of quietly, gently or not gently and quietly work that through an organization? It's a struggle. It's a struggle. And I'm not going to have the best answer here, but I will say from my own experience, I think sometimes you really do have to leave. That's real because to your point, people have um, perception solidified. I think this idea of moving to a different part of the company, at least, um, can be really helpful. If you're known as the um, customer marketing person and suddenly you're you're wanting to do sales, people are going to ask you about customer marketing and, and you're, you're always going to be known in some way for that in the organization. I think struggle for, I'd be curious here from EAs who sort of are still being asked to schedule things 10, th 10 years later. It's like, no, no, that's, that's not what I'm doing right now. Um, so I think good boundary setting, of course, and, and sort of reminding people. I will say one challenge in kind of going for the next rung or, or taking something on is have a really um, clear conversation with your manager, or with your CEO about what success looks like in that next role. And you may think, oh, I'm organizing the sales team birthday parties. Um, Samantha McKenna, former VP of sales at LinkedIn said, you know, should people on her team saying, oh, I, I organized the, the company you know, social hour. And so I, I should be a manager. And she said, did you hit your quota this quarter? Like you still have to hit, you still have to hit your quota. And by the way, organizing the company birthday is not necessarily what she looks for in, in a, a sales director or whatnot. And so saying, well, what, what does success look like? And if your startup hasn't uh, built career pathing, you know, figure out some proxy for that. Also, I would say um, if you're looking for a certain role that maybe isn't available at your current company, doing fractional consulting with Bolster or for, with another organization is, is really helpful because there are certain parts of the job that, you know, you can take on a lot on your own, you know, in addition to your current job, but until you've built a budget, you're not going to necessarily have to, if you have someone above you, who's already doing that. And so find a way to do that for someone else or find some piece of your role where you could, um, 
you know, expand it to the next, next layer uh, without necessarily doing it at your current company, or if you're going to do it at your current company, make sure there's room for it to your point on stepping on toes. Well, that, that's probably a good topic too. Another thing I wanted to, um, to talk to you about for a couple of minutes, which is sort of the, the concept of sponsorship or mentorship. And I don't know how you define those. And if you define those two things differently, or if you have some other framework or construct, but um, you know, it, it, I have been the, the uh, beneficiary of really strong mentorship in my career. I have tried to pay that forward. Um, I've tried to create organizations that I've worked in that sort of do that systematically. Quite frankly, the whole premise of Bolster is to bring that to the, the startup ecosystem um, externally. But how do you sort of think about that internally at a company? And um, how do you think about it from both perspectives, like both your early career, mid-career, and you need sponsorship or mentorship and your company doesn't do that systematically? Um, and then how do you think about that from the perspective of a leader, um, you know, if you're in an organization that doesn't, doesn't foster it? Great question. First, I might put you on the spot. Do you want to define how you see the differences? Because I know we've talked about this a lot, the mentorship, sponsorship, coaching trio. Um, so and I think I hopefully I have the same answer I had last time, which is I have a clear difference in my mind between mentor and coach, and I don't have as good um, a definition of sponsor. So for me, the difference between coach and mentor is a coach helps you be the best version of you as a human, right? So they work with you on things like, are you a good listener? Are you a clear communicator? Are you being true to your values? Have you defined your values? Um, how do you show up? And a mentor is someone that can help you learn your job, right? They've been the CMO and you're not the CMO. They've been a CEO and you're taking that job for the first time. Um, and I guess if I had to define sponsor, and now I'm way more curious to hear your definition of it because it's probably a lot better, um, it would be uh, someone who's helping you navigate the organization that you're in. Super helpful. Um, no, I love those definitions. I think um, kind of getting at the heart of your question of sort of how do you find mentorship within your company? And to your point, you may or may not have a former CMO floating around unless it's the CEO. Um, and even then that person probably has limited time. I like Sam Jacobs community pavilion. There's uh, bolster. There's organizations like chief where you can find either peer mentorship or folks who, um, have had the job before in different capacities and potentially are willing to support you. Um, if you go through an accelerator like Techstars, right? Founders get access to um, pools of mentors. I think one of the challenges with um, coming up in your career is it's hard to figure out what a mentor needs to be. Like, do you just find someone who's more senior or someone who's really good at a particular skill set that you don't have yet? And I think it's always helpful as you're looking at what you're trying to accomplish and what your outcomes you're trying to achieve is finding sort of the, the guides who will support you on your path. And that can be sponsors who, um, I don't have a great definition for it either, other than I'd say people who are supporting you to your point within an organization, but also um, I think particularly cross-functionally who will champion your work. And something that I talk about in the book Lead Upwards a lot is your quote unquote first team is really your fellow startup leaders, your executives. It's it's not necessarily your functional area that you're owning and figuring out how to uh, work really closely with your CFO if you're a VP of sales or a CRO, uh, how to work really closely with your engineering team and, and from product team when you're in operations or customer success, right? And making sure that um, all of the different cross-functional sponsorships for your programs, especially, you know, as, as you're growing your company, things like customer success and sales, they need to be tied at the hip, right? And, and thinking about 
um, retention is now something that in today's difficult fundraising climate, I know a lot of founders are thinking of. And so this would be my advice to founders too, is encourage your teams to really build those strong relationships, whether it's through regular offsites where you're encouraging intra-team bonding with your first team, but also, you know, encouraging people even in a remote setting or hybrid setting to, um, to find time for those relationships. Cause I think a lot can get lost and, and it slows an organization down a lot. I really value taking extra time with my peers. I think that's also a competitive advantage when you're going to market against competitors where they don't, you know, we've all seen when sales sells something, customer success is like, what the heck did you do? And right, what did like, you that's, not, over the wall that, that's, that's not on, that's not in the product. What are you doing? We can't put that on the roadmap. Right. So um, in all seriousness, that I think the next sort of wave of companies that are really focused on net dollar retention and success, they're going to have those really tight cross-functional relationships, particularly on the revenue team, but also on, I think, the entire customer life cycle. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's uh, I think that's probably right. And so I want to build on something you said there that, that I think is interesting. So I'm a, um, a big reader of Patrick Lencioni. And um, I think this sort of first team concept is, is pretty prominent in some of his books. Um, and, uh, and it's certainly something that I, as a CEO, am always pushing with my leadership team. Like, no, 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 this is your first team. You, you cannot show up here as the delegate of the, you know, the head of the marketing delegation. Like you're here as a senior executive, you know, this is the team that's steering the whole ship. Um, I, I haven't given thought to what that's like one layer down um, because I haven't been a CXO in a very long time and I was probably a really immature one when I was. And a lot of this literature and thinking kind of hadn't evolved yet at that point. So, um, so you as a marketing leader, do you manage your marketing leadership team that same way? And you tell them all like, no, this is your first team. You can't come in as the representative of brand and you as the representative of product marketing. And um, does that translate down or does it get watered down? You know, I haven't had that explicit sort of statement come out of my mouth, but yes, I think that's the sentiment in that, um, particularly as we're working cross-functionally and there's, I think, startups now, titles, I mean, we've all kinds of titles that happen in, in startups, but we see people, product marketing can live in product and it can live in marketing. Um, cu cu customer success, right? Account, account management can live in CS or sales. Um, I think there are certain areas of the business that are more clear, but for a lot of companies, like ownership um, has to be defined, right? Who gets renewal, who's um, incentivized for renewal, renewals, right? Um, is the CS team or sales team or some combination, right? And so I think, um, or I think what I want to share here is as you're building your team and you're thinking about it, remembering um, sort of the why, like why are you organizing in a certain way? And so when I think about the first team management, part of what I know is that we all have more context um, about everything cross-functionally than everyone on our sort of individual departmental teams. So it's interesting, you're both a delegate to your first team, which is that executive layer, and there are certain things you can't share or can't share yet with your department. And at the same time, you have all the context in your department that your first team doesn't have. And so I, I sometimes I feel like I'm constantly sort of communicating up and down in that way and also filtering with discretion um, and, you know, certain information that I can't necessarily share. And I think one of the most frustrating things as a startup employee um, or someone coming up through the startup world is this decision is happening and I don't understand it like, just in general. And so right. the more, the more that we can help people understand, even if they don't agree with why decisions were made um, and have some sort of thing that they can point to, um, that's really helpful. And again, it's helpful both with your first team, but also in a department. 
Uh, yeah, I think that's that's a really good way of um, that's a really good way of framing it. And I, you know, like I think it's it's tough. I, I have a lot of admiration for people who are, are CXOs because um, more than the CEO, you really are in in two different worlds. Yes, the CEO has a board to manage, and CEO is also part of two teams, but that that's not not the same. And you know, look, the bigger the organization gets, that that just cascades down, right? Your direct reports will have their own large teams to manage, and they're missing context from two rungs up. Then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's great. Uh, anyone who's ever run an ads account, right? Oh my gosh, the Amex broke, right? That's an immediate issue. And like, you have to, you know, you have to switch cards or things like that. These, these little things break, but they, you know, they can shut down an ad program for right. a day or for a few days. Right. And I'm giving this example because I think about the times when your team suddenly needs to be exposed to, they need that support from you. They need you to champion something within the organization, you know, get with the CFO, figure it out. Um, Oh my gosh, we just opened an entity in Spain and suddenly we need, you know, we have this new bank account in Spain and make sure people are hired appropriately if they just move to Spain. Like all of these things come up, especially if you're working in an international company. And I think one of the most important things is empowerment, right? Empowering your team. But also there are certain things where you as the leader, unfortunately, you're the only one who can sort of zoom to the next thing and get people connected to who they need to make the thing happen. Um, so I think being very humble about that and um, yes, not above unclogging a toilet, not above getting someone an Amex ASAP. Um, right. And just like a CEO, right? I mean, you're, you're fixing these things too. Yeah. And I, you know, I get those, th- doing that can be very frustrating to the people on your team because they're like, hey, wait, why is this person swooping in and doing it? Like, why couldn't I do that? And the reality is sometimes it's just easier. It's easier for the CXO to do it than a manager or it's easier for the CEO to do it than, than a CXO. So, I also, oh, yeah, go ahead. But, no, I was gonna say last question. Sure. Uh, although you can come, we can have you back again. And I always love talking to you. Thank you, Matt, um, likewise. Uh, let's talk about quitting. I'm so happy. What is the right way to quit as an executive? I'm smiling and I'm excited, um, not because I love this topic. I mean, it's it's just so juicy. And I, I think I'm really excited because, Matt, I, I really resonate with your perspectives on it and something, not to put words in your mouth, but I've heard you talk about in the past sort of this idea of maybe an, a leader coming to you before they've made the decision. And I was, as I was preparing for this delightful conversation. I knew it was going to be delightful or I had had a strong feeling um, yesterday and I was thinking about it. You know, I realized this is one of the key moments in a startup journey where the founder really has very little control in some, in some ways. If someone has decided they want to move on, but you desperately want them to stay or need them to stay, even for a given time period, suddenly the power is imbalanced. There's a shift. And so my advice for CXO is, first of all, if you're in your first startup leadership role, um, no, you can't give two weeks. Like, don't do that. Um, that feels inhumane. Um, I mean, practice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in certain countries, I think that's illegal or I don't even know. It's not definitely not standard, but in the U.S. we have at-will employment. Of course, there are a lot of different circumstances and, and I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but in general, um, and I give a, a, an outline on how to do this in the book Lead Upwards is I'd say at least come up with a timeline that enables you to do your job successfully and, and manage the transition well, knowing that you couldn't possibly hand off an entire program in, in two weeks. That's, that's, that's unrealistic. The second thing is really decide, are you um, really sure that you want to move on or is it still fixable, right? Is there some piece that could potentially be workable? And this is advice I give very candidly. I mean, this is a complicated job market for a lot of reasons, but you have to be willing in certain cases 
to potentially close your laptop and have it be your last day when you have the conversation. Um, that's never happened to me personally, but I've heard of it happening to folks. And we've all seen folks who've been let go and it is just their last day. Um, hopefully if you've done, if you haven't done a great job, maybe that's fine. Like closing your laptop is fine, but if you're doing a good job, if you want to do, you know, sort of shepherd your team, if you have health insurance, things that are tied to, um, your family's security, I'd say being thoughtful of, you know, if someone were to say worst case scenario, close your laptop, you're not unaware that that's a potential. Hopefully that won't happen. And then also going into the conversation, understanding what you're willing to do versus what your ideal case would be. And so, um, so when the CEO says, yeah. oh, that's terrific. A 12 month transition sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah tw 24 months. Sounds great. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I've stayed longer at companies than I've wanted to. I'll be honest. There was a job I wrapped up where I was in a leadership role and I knew the company was getting acquired and it was the right thing to do for my equity, for a lot of reasons that were selfish, not just for the sort of altruism of it. But I, I wanted to make sure that we hit our targets because they, you know this acquisition required a lot of different pieces to be in place. And I was a part of that, part of the revenue team. And um, I, I had hoped to wrap up after two, you know, two months-ish and ended up staying, I think, four. Um, it was fine. And my new role was was willing to wait and, and we had good communication there. And I also think a, a place that really wants you and, and understands your value will hopefully be willing to work with you. Absolutely. Um, and willing to have you take a vacation before you start. Absolutely crucial. I love that. I also say when it comes to quitting too, I mean, you have to decide how much you're willing to disclose. And I'm curious how this lands for you as a CEO, but I think it can be hard to give certain feedback. And also if you're holding on to so much feedback when you're leaving, like there's probably been bigger issues along the way. I mean, ideally, yeah. ideally you're not running from a company, you're running towards what's next and exciting. Um, again, this is a hard topic. I'm very open to feedback. I'm curious how you think about this as a CEO, Matt, maybe as we wrap up. I love getting exit feedback. And uh, sometimes you know what it is. You're not surprised at all. Sometimes you're surprised. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, I've always been really disciplined about, about getting exit feedback. I like collecting it myself. If I recognize that a given departure is a little fraught, I will have, you know, HR do it, which they systematically do, or I'll even have a board member do it if an executive leaves. Um, so I, I think it's a gift. Cool. I'll share one more note, which is, I think endings are really hard, like in general for people and people. My, my line on that is if things ended well, they wouldn't end. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's definitely a viewpoint. Um, look, people pay attention to how people leave your company. And if you're an executive and you leave in a hurry and sort of, it's this like dramatic thing, first of all, any team members you ever take with you that creates bad will, right? Like if you ever were to recruit from your previous team, right? The people, people have that in their memory. And I also think it scares other executives too. And I think it just puts everyone on edge. So um, one thing I like, I work for a European company, uh, people will be let go and stay on much longer than you would expect um, based on labor law. And so there's a culture of almost like, we know this person is done, but they're going to spend a month wrapping things up. And it's, it's, to me, it feels like mutual respect. Sometimes you have to really exit someone from the business, but I think the spirit of this person has provided some value and we want to honor them. Um, I would say, regardless of how things feel inside, potentially very stormy, um, try to, to leave with as clear of a head as possible. 
not burn bridges unless you have to. And to the point, if you have equity that you are thinking about exercising, um, a lot of people do negotiate longer windows than three months, but you know, that's part of my closed laptop thing is, um, again, it hasn't happened to me personally. I've heard of it happening to others is, are, are you willing to put up cash within three months if, if you want to buy your equity and you work for a U.S. company where that's the structure? Right. So things to think about. All right. And on that note, I think we're going to close today. I will have you back on and talk more at some other point. But Sarah Brown, author of Lead Upward, CMO extraordinaire. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Matt.